0: Welcome to the When I Grow Up podcast with me, Katie Filey. Each week I interview a guest about the trials, tribulations and joys of growing up. My guest this week is the New York Public Library's Chief Digital Officer, Tony Aggie. He is the visionary behind innovations such as The Guide at the Guardian and Wired UK, and also one of the founding fathers of BBC iPlayer, the BBC's pioneering streaming and catch-up service. An early disruptor and proponent of change in the 80s and 90s, Tony began his career in publishing and even helped launch Richard Branson's London Listings Magazine event. Tony's reputation for leading change earned him an invitation to join the Guardian Media Group and by the mid-1990s, he was head of product development. From the Guardian, he rejoined Branson to work on the launch of Virgin.net before spending 12 years at the BBC where he rose to the much-coveted positions of controller of internet and controller of BBC Archive Development. In 2016, Tony ventured across the pond to become Chief Digital Officer of the New York Public Library, where he is currently unleashing big ideas to digitally transform the institution. Welcome, Tony Aggie, to the When I Grow Up podcast. Tell me about a younger Tony. What was he like and what did he want to do when he grew up? Well, I was,
1: I was always, um, I was always interested, and I was, I'm, uh, I'm kind of quite detailed I'm quite thorough. I like lists, I like order. I have a sort of, at some, you know, as I'm getting older, certainly more aware of my OCD. And <laughs> so, one aspect of being mixed race that was possibly different for me than others is that although uh, my father was uh, Nigerian and my mother was Italian, and therefore, uh, on the face of it, I look brown i didn 't know any brown people at all, any people of color at all until I was about ten, so, so i don 't think I ever remember not having an actual relationship with any person at all of color until I was then and His name was Truman Dominic, and he was he came to my primary school you know he was a child at my mm-hmm. primary school, so actually my primary school up until that point, there were no other children of color until Truman arrived. And so my perspective on life at that up until then was one purely of a, of essentially of a white person. I could, I never saw any brown people. Everyone could see me. All of my cultural references, everything I ever did up until that point, well, forever, but up until that point certainly were entirely based on the, the family, the family environment dynamic that I grew up in. And the, uh, my mother was very uh, religious. Uh, so we would spend a lot of time at church. Um, and my, she married uh, my, uh, you know, a, a man from London, so he and my brother and my, my, my mother were white, their family were all white, they had you know, white step kind of relations, and they were in Italians. And so I always felt this kind of strange sense of otherness uh, as a child, just because of the color of my skin. And I'm sure there are many people who have versions of that, whether you have kind of afflictions that people think disable you, that don't in any way disable you, you're still in every respect uh, a sort of a normally functioning human but somebody just kind of gives you attributes that they imagine um, cause you some kind of difficulty. Uh, I remember being very, I remember a girl, uh, a large uh, girl once being very spiteful to me and she called me a nasty name based on my colour. And I retaliated. I was maybe about, you know, nine or 10, and I retaliated, refer, refer, referring to her size. And she said, well, at least somebody I can do something about my problem. You can't do anything about yours. Right? now, which is the kind of thing a child would say. Yeah. There's no problem with it. Well, it's not a nice thing to have heard. But the, the issue was that she assumed that there was a, there was a yeah, problem, an issue, yeah. you know, that there was some, as a result of my color, that I was kind of in some way disabled and unable to do certain things. And, You know, from my point of view, I knew full well because of the environment I grew up in that there was nothing that anybody else that I was with could do that I couldn't do. Um, That the, you know, the pigmentation was made literally no difference in my ability to do anything, to sing, to do math, to play with Lego, to ride a bike. I mean, I could do anything that anybody else could do. And yet people still imagine that there was some kind of aspect of me that was in some way disabled. And so I've always kind of looked at the world from that perspective, that that must apply to everybody. Everybody must have something somewhere in them that others, kind of a judge, will in some way kind of reduce their capacity for anything, for for learning or for love or for creative output or self-actualization, which is kind of completely nonsensical. And so I'd say of all of the things as a child that uh, I carry with me, it's that more than anything else and it's kind of it's completely determined that's kind of the path i have taken through life and not on purpose also i'm cleverer than people thought i was certainly not as clever as i think i am but because of the color of my skin people always assume that, that i would be below sort of average but actually all of my uh scores as a child were considerably higher than average and they often surprise, you know, surprise people, not that they surprise people when anyone get a score that high, yeah. but they surprise anybody that a brown person with a score that high.
0: Do you remember the time you realised this about yourself? Because it's something that you you maybe just couldn't quite describe or articulate when you were younger, but as you've gone through life, you clearly have got a really good grasp of how this has affected you. And, uh,
1: yeah, not so much, but more, more kind of a sense of injustice, more mm. kind of thinking that things weren't fair or, or kind of right. But equally, being really to, to not to become a victim and, you know, because because there were so few people of color around at the time, um, it, kind of most racist, um, you would draw quite a lot of racist uh, bile. Um, and it kind of does toughen you up quite a bit. And you kind of think, you know, first of all, there's nowhere really to hide. But secondly, well, I'm not going to become a victim of somebody else's position on this. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of des- the refusal to become a victim, I think, was helpful. Because that meant, as I've made kind of career choices, I'm kind of trying to create the conditions where other people are, you know, do not have victimhood as the default position.
0: So when you were growing up, do you remember being at school and being drawn to particular subjects or career choices? Like what was around you that you could see that you could aspire to? A few things...
1: Uh... But, but more, I think, teachers than subjects. Mm -hmm. So I think you're kind of drawn to a teacher for either whom you have an affinity, or somebody that you think sees the world the way you do, and that you, you know, you're, you know, you can feel that you're, you're thriving, you're, you're, you're flourishing under that, and under that person. And there was uh, uh, one very wonderful man called John uh, Bradford, Mr. Bradford. And he was just the most uplifting human to be around. He was interested in literally everything. He was interested in music. He was interested in in theater. And I went to a working class school. I came from a reasonably working class environment. And so things like theater and and classical music wouldn't be things that would be naturally available to us. And this teacher kind of made sure that that was in our diet. So he was great. I had some fantastic English teachers in my next school so I was kind of very interested in, in English. Uh, I'm not very good at reading. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't really like it very much. I'm not good at it. But, I, you know, but I'm okay, you know, kind of orally. I can, sp- I can speak uh, re- reasonably well. And so I had teachers who kind of encouraged me to articulate what I felt rather than necessarily write it down. Um, I'm okay at maths, or math as they call it here, um, but only as a means to an end. So I suppose in general, uh, I'm good with tools. I'm very good with uh, my hands. Um, I have a kind of a musical ear, um, and so those things kind of lean you towards a kind of creative expression. Mm-hmm. I think mean, you're good with words. You know, you've got you know, good at rhythm. You can deal with you know you're good at pattern recognition. I don't know why, but I I don't believe there's anything I can't do if I put my mind to it. And I think um, I think that would be true of everybody. I think no I think there's nothing much that anybody can't do if they put their mind to it. But I am good at putting my mind to it.
0: So you say you're good at putting your mind to things. When you then came to having to start a career and work out what on earth you wanted to do, did you have your mind set on something or were you a bit more open to the like, external forces?
1: It, it, it needed to be in the creative sphere. Um, but I think I'm not, I don't have anything much to say. I've spent. I've been going very luckily. I spent my entire life in the creative industries, publishing, and uh, obviously at the BBC and aspects of music. And almost everybody I meet uh, feels they have something to say. They're all all kind of authors or or writers or producers. And unfortunately, I don't have anything much to say. So, but I am good at creating the environment for others. And I do believe I I kind of have. I, I kind of have sufficient empathy to care enough that you should be able to say the thing you need to say, and I'm good at helping you to do that. So I'm kind of more of a facilitator of Mm -hmm. other people's ideas than have them of my own. But I can definitely understand the creative processes and I can apply design thinking. Um, And so as a kind of problem solver, I'm a useful person to have on your team.
0: You obviously know that I think there's this kind of constant question, like we're always asking, like, "What do you want to do? What do you want to be?" Did you ever struggle with that idea when you were younger, or were you a bit more relaxed and just kind of took opportunities as they arose?
1: More, the, more the second. I mean, I, I, you know, like, like anybody in the era I grew up, punk, a punk era, I wanted to be a musician for a while. <laughs> <coughs> and you know, I'm good at mastering things. You know, if you if you gave me, a, I'm kind of quite obsessive. So if you gave me a thing to do, I would not stop practicing it until mm-hmm. I was good at it the, the other side of that is therefore I have an addictive personality and I think it's very easy to abuse the privileges uh, or the opportunities you get if you pull off success and so musicians die early and I kind of realized that, not quite uh, the route for you that thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah because uh, I would find it very difficult to to resist the the
0: lifestyle yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) the safe route instead it feels like change has definitely been kind of a lifeblood part of your career and I think that you quite like sitting on the cusp of that change what is it about it that you like enjoy so much
1: I remember once thinking to myself that's that kind of I like I like that kind of approach Oscar Wilde has where you take something a cliche and then you just turn it around the other way and it's three times more interesting and Mm -hmm. probably means much more, you know, I can resist anything but temptation or whatever. And so I I do remember very specifically that cliche about if only I I knew then what I know now. And I thought to myself, what if it's the other way around? What if I could know now what I will know then? And so that's kind of always driven me to try and stay as far ahead of the curve as I can, just trying to think, you know, if I could work out what's going to happen next now that I can be in the right place or I can create mm. the conditions for success, either for myself or whatever it is I'm working on. So I think that's probably, if of anything, it would be that, is trying to, trying to kind of know the future
0: And when you first encountered the internet in 1993, did you have that immediate thought? Like, could you just see that this is the future? Like, what what do you remember about that
1: moment? So my job at The Guardian was, I was the head of creative development or some of this. My idea was just, my job was to kind of think of the next thing. And I'd had a lot of success because The Guardian was the environment that was looking, was, was, you know, it was the kind of place that wanted people like me to succeed. Yeah, so I was always interested in, in computers, not the computers, but what they could do and how they could make things easier or better or faster or simpler. And so I always dabbled with them at the Guardian, and we, they let us—they let me have any uh, anything. So you know, we we had next computers. After, you know, we we had apples, obviously, mm-hmm. but yeah, um Gary and I had a next computer, and they let us play with things. And we used to be always trying to join them up and make them do things, just among ourselves. Um, and there was a, I think there was a point when Gary or somebody worked out how to link our machines into the Atex system, the system that produced the newspaper. And I know this is going to not be obvious, but it was, a kind of, it was a kind of a revelation, which was not I can see the system that's producing the newspaper, because obviously I could see that, but I could link another machine into it and see that. Then I realized I could take this machine out of the building and still see tomorrow's Guardian. That was the moment when I thought, I can see tomorrow's Guardian from here. And just kind of realizing that everybody else will have to wait until tomorrow morning and it's printed. But I can see tomorrow's Guardian. The idea that I could use my own machine to see the news Yeah, in real time, and be outside the building or anywhere in the, the world. Building, yeah. yeah. So that was the thing. And at that point, kind of realizing it all changed.
0: And I couldn't not talk to you without talking about the BBC. And actually, I read somewhere that you never actually applied for your job at the BBC if a crafty friend did it for you. Is that
1: true? It's true. My friend, Steph uh, Magdalinski, I was in his house and he said, you should apply. There's a great, you'll get this job. This is a great job. And I said, I don't want to work with BBC, Steph. We were having dinner in his house, and my wife was there with his wife, and then we were, we were sitting talking and drinking, and we were drinking way too much as we would do with Steph and Kay. And uh, he started calling. He asked me, a, I don't know." He asked me a sort of random, "When was your date of birth?" or something. I said, like, no, "You know, twenty third December." And then he was sitting there the other side of the room, and then he asked me another kind of arbitrary question. And after about the fourth or fifth question he asked me, I, I started paying attention. I said, "What are you doing, yeah. Steph?" he said applying for a job at the BBC <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you have to then read your application that he wrote for you before your interview did you check no, what you he, said
1: no he just sent it oh. and then the next thing was I then got the um, invitation for you
0: that's interview. so fascinating because obviously normally the, when you plan your next career move you're kind of the person driving it but it's quite amazing that a lot of this may never have happened if it wasn't for that one friend yeah. so you moved on eventually to become the controller of BBC's archive strategy BBC internet first BBC then? internet first then archive strategy yeah. what did this entail
1: the first part, part. was I mean, you know, look, I, I, not only have I been very privileged I've had the luckiest career of any mm-hmm. person and I know that that kind of thing about you make your own luck and maybe that's true but, it, but I d- truly have been very very lucky um, and so I've been in the right place at the right time so many times Um The BBC was uh, a very unsettled environment uh, around that time because it had enough kind of resistance to antibodies that the one thing it didn't want was the internet virus in it. And it did everything it could to push this out. Mm -hmm. The internet had to protect it, it had to become very adept at surviving in an environment that really didn't want it. Mm -hmm. The leader of uh, the, the head of... Uh, new media at that time, a guy called Ashley Highfield um, was completely on his own, and he was up against a very, very hostile environment to try and to try and bed in, you know, kind of the the, the future, these future technologies. Yeah. Um, and there was a point at which uh, he changed his department around and just kind of gave me the role of, in, of control of internet, which would in itself wasn't this was a poison chalice because then all that hostility was kind of pointed yeah. at me. I was lucky because I met Ben Lavender and we came up with the iPlayer. Yeah,
0: you have to tell that tale. It's a, it's a well, great there are, story.
1: There are two kind of versions of the same story and I know that Ben kind of, is only aware of one half of it. But there, well, there are two versions. My version of Ben's version, <laughs> right? The fact that we're very close friends and we worked in it together, but how we both came to it was slightly different. So if you imagine like Lennon and McCartney, you know? So he was learning his yeah. thing, I was mine, and We met at, I don't in know, whatever middle. it is, some uh, village fate. Uh, my journey was, in my role as controller of uh, internet, I had a number of... Areas of responsibility that I didn't have much control over. One of them was the BBC Three uh, service license. Because under the BBC Three service, BBC Three service license, he had a series of, obli- of digital obligations. It had to, have a, had to have a website of certain type, but he also had to produce other things like a news product, an online news product, and so on. Um, and the controller at that time, controller of BBC Three, wasn't. Massively interested in that he was a programmer very great very fine program maker But he wasn't so interested at that moment in the digital side. So he kind of outsourced it to a couple of um, Individuals anyway, one of these uh, People was being measured by the amount of clicks that he would get on his site And so he would use you know any properties from this of the programs to create little mini sites one of them was on this woman Jordan the uh, model for the program there were some, some pictures taken of her and various states of uh, dress. Yeah. So anyway, so he posted these these things on the side and, you know, a little bit of traffic spikes and it was quite well. The uh, Evening Standard kind of saw this spike in the uh, activity and they contacted the director of TV and said, you know what's going on on your website? Isn't it's isn't
0: a it? Jordan-based strategy. A <laughs> <laughs> so a um,
1: cheesy. So and she was kind of a bit taken by surprise because she imagined that somebody with higher standards than that would have been keeping an eye on it. Um, and that would be true under normal circumstances. It was just, say, this kind of this kind of blind spot because of the BBC3 perspective. Mm-hmm. So she got in touch with my boss, who said, what are we are going to do? And I just said, just take the site down. Anyway, then the guy who'd been responsible for it, I said to him, we need to go... For, uh, for a drink. And he said, am I going to be fired? And I said, you're not going to be fired. We're going to go drinking. What are we going to do? We're going to think of such a great idea when we're drinking that when we come back tomorrow, we'll say, I'll say, this guy's a genius. I can't fire him. Look at him. He's got a great idea. So we sat all the evening and we just kind of drank away. Um, and it was this bar at the BBC Bush House. Never closed because the World Service was there, so it, just, it was a 24-hour yeah. operation. And I, I have no idea what we just drank and drank and drank. And we thought some really awful, stupid ideas uh, for what we could do with BBC Three and uh, the BBC website. But one of them was this idea of the Threvo, which was a, a way of downloading uh, television programs directly into a computer. And we thought that'd be great because the kind of person watching BBC Three is a young millennial. They have they're more like a broadband access. So we kind of roll out of there, and i jump in a cab because it's so late but I, I i kind of thought to myself I, i'll never remember this and it would have been really early like three or four in the morning but I, I i call my my friend bill thompson anyway i call him in the middle of the night one thing my friends know of me is i'm likely to do that so it wasn't as odd a thing but he was still very generous um and i said bill you have to write this stuff down. He writes this. I, I read, I say, I don't know what I yeah. said to him, I said whatever it was. And I get up the next morning and I get this email from Bill. And, uh, and I thought, God, it's just a good idea.
0: <laughs> um, it's like you're in a musician that thinks of a melody and then I've got to, i got I've got to write this down quick. Yeah. So what his name? Uh,
1: uh, Keith Richard, isn't it? With, uh, is it Satisfaction or something? Uh, there's some great tune that he wrote. He woke up in the middle of the night, recorded it, and then went back to sleep and then he woke up. So like his tape recorder this? was on and realized that he'd written this great riff or something. Yeah, like, that's basically the, you, isn't it? Like, so I, I said, what's this? And he said, that's what you called me last night. And then like, oh, my God, like, you know, like, gently, like, kind of, the, the yeah. Going oh, yeah, I vaguely remember doing this. Um, so we went in and I said to this guy, look, you know, write this down, put your put your name on it and send it back to me. And then I, we, we're done. You know, I can say we've got a great idea. <clears throat> anyway, that happened. And my boss said, fine, tell him not to do it again. But I went to them, I said, look, this is a really good idea, we should do this. And he said, don't be stupid, they'd never let us do that. And I said, it's a really strong idea, this is like, this is the idea. And he said, honestly, you know, I'm just happy not to be fired. And I remember taking this around to different people and saying, I've got this amazing idea. I took it to the head of broadband, I took it to the head of, I took it to everyone. No one wanted to do this thing. Um, and then I went to the controller of um, it was He was, was. an engineer, so I don't know, but, but it was a, a, an engineering controller. Um, and I kind of said, Look, is this even, you know, I've been showing it to people, you know, the last couple of days, and everyone thinks it's stupid. Like, is it even possible? Because like, Bill is very knowledgeable. Bill's an engineer, very knowledgeable. He wouldn't have written it down, if it wasn't possible, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and yet nobody else thinks it's possible. It can't be, you know, I've never known Bill to be wrong, so is this possible? And he looked at it and said, yeah, that's, I mean, it's possible. I mean, it's, you know, it's not likely, but it's possible. Yeah. Um, he said, it's funny you should say that. There's a guy working for me called Ben Lavender who had more or less exactly the same idea. And he called it the internet uh, PVR. Uh, you should go talk with him. So I go and talk to Ben and I say... I've got this idea or I can't remember your internet PVR. And then he shows me this thing and he'd almost, he built a very, like a mock-up okay. of it. It kind of worked, it didn't work, but it, you know, it was enough for me to see. I said, yeah, that's it. Like, can we do this? Um, and so he said, yeah, you know, I've been waiting for somebody to take it. Like, no one, you know, he's saying no one's taking it seriously. So, um, I had some budget, unspent budget in the BBC three budget. Um, and, uh, I just kind of re I took that back and I went to the company and I said look I'm not going to spend this money on they were making games or something I want you to build a prototype of this thing that Ben's talking about uh, and the rest of it is that so they built the prototype it wasn't very good I think Ben then um, took over and Ben just kind of you know literally grabbed this idea and pushed it right the way through uh, the organisation um, and you know the pair of us you know kind of championed this thing and Ben built the
0: and through was it 84 meetings that you had to push it through?
1: Oh, way more than that. Really? Way, way more than that. And I think that, again, sort of is a recurring theme, but this is the kind of how do you get things through an organization of resistance? Way more than 84. I, th- I think the reason we, we say 84 is I think it was 84 up until uh, up until something happened. I think up until we got the permission to uh, – it's just kind of a working model of it. I think, I think it was 84 up until Greg Dyke said – you know gave us like a quarter of a million dollars and said build show me, build one that works. Ben is kind of way more even more meticulous than me and he kept very detailed uh, records of every meeting because each meeting people would tell us why it was the most stupid thing they'd ever heard of, and we would write down why what it they'd said and think okay well, that's another problem we have to fix and you know, like you'll never get through a rights framework. Okay, well, we need to go to understand rights. And then we'd kind of go to the next meeting and they'd say, well, what have you thought about rights? Mm-hmm. And go, well, we thought about rights. but..." Uh, they go, and that's no, exactly right
0: how you like, immunized the, yeah, the product. Exactly. To, we, yeah. we found everything,
1: every objection they gave us. And Bill and Ben and I would then yeah. spend our time back. okay, so what did, why, are they, why, have they, why did this person say it will never happen? Okay, what do we need to do? You know, the creatives would never agree, it. you know, the screen size is too small. You'll never be able to download the file or you'll stream mm-hmm. the file in the amount of time you've got available. Um, what? Do you, how are you going to stop it from getting overseas? You know, there'd be just all these different things and Ben would just kind of work his way through each one of these with you technically or if they were strategic, I'd work with you where if they're conceptual. So, it was kind of the 84 reasons why the iPlayer would fail was the first 84. Then after that, I mean, I would say hundreds of meetings after that. God.
0: But obviously it launched in 2007. It's been in existence now for a good 11 years. Do you, do you look back and you just want to say, I told you so? They
1: told you so. The, the story of the iPlayer I mainly heard about the number of people who resisted it, but there were some. we had some people who really championed this. So Ben and I kind of take all the credit for it. But actually there were some very, very serious... Uh, obstacles and without really strong support, um, Mark Byford was a very vocal champion. Without Mark Thompson, it would never happen. So I don't want to kind of make it sound like there was just little me and Ben and we were mm. fighting against everybody. Actually, it's not quite true.
0: So much of your, your career and what you've done is, from what I can see, is about having ideas, believing in them, executing them, and maybe often in the face of resistance. How do you do that?
1: Yeah, so I think of the four things you just said, the fourth one is the more important one, which is the, um, the idea of kind of dealing with resistance. Um, and so I'm really talking about resistance as a way of um, almost... Must sort of inoculating the idea, if it can survive the resistance that, that the, the antibodies that the institution that you're working with is going to throw at it, mm. then when it reaches the outside world, it should be fit for purpose. And robust. robust, yeah. <laughs> if any idea is going to survive and pass muster, it has to be worthy of the organization, but also be on message. And I was equipped to carry that load in a way that many other people may not have been. And that's because I worked at places like, I don't know, The Guardian and Virgin mm-hmm. that also have very similar, not obvious, but very similar processes. You know, you, you, anybody could turn up a Virgin with an idea. And Virgin looks like the sort of organization that would think, yeah, bring your, bring your wildest, craziest idea here. But it's, it's not an arbitrary place. You know. Virgin thinks very, very seriously about the kind of product, services, ideas that fit with its audience, its brand, its reputation. You know, I mean, if you can get an idea to survive at Virgin, it will survive in the outside world, that's for sure.
0: So you kind of nearly had two years here now. Yeah. What is your plan for the New York Public Library and what have you been up to?
1: The, um, the library, this library is uh, is a glorious building, as you can see, but it also has a glorious legacy. Um, and uh, the similarities between it and the BBC are many. Um, it is uh, an organization that takes very seriously the people it represents. We know that we're doing something that must endure. We know that our standards must be the very highest. We know that, again, our reputation is the thing that we must maintain. And my, my goal, is to help the library position itself comfortably in the 21st century, without making a fuss and without doing anything that is too outlandish, so that the people who rely on this organisation and this institution can take it for granted and that it is appropriate in the future.
0: And how have you found it for the first two years? Do you feel like you've made big strides, progress-wise? I have,
1: and I, you know, it's a very adolescent environment. It's very young and it's very youthful and it's very optimistic, but it doesn't have kind of the same ground in, 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 uh, in bureaucracy and, and sort of you know, uh, solid rules. And so there are times when I've kind of put my foot down imagining that I was standing on something that was much sturdier, only to discover that it's kind of things are much more fragile or, or temporary. And so it's taken me a while to kind of you know, work out how to move my weight around in a place that looks like it is more mature. Than it actually is.
0: And when that moment happened, and when you were faced with that decision of potentially coming and moving here, was it a no-brainer, or did you really contemplate it before you made the move?
1: Well, anyone who knows me well enough would know that, it, that even uh, uh, the most spontaneous decision I would, take would would take me a huge amount of deliberation. Um, so it was it was a, it was definitely a no-brainer. But I did spend quite a lot of time thinking it, thinking about it, because I, was, I wasn't just moving myself; I was trans, transplanting my entire family, and had a very interesting time for my children's personal development.
0: What's New York kind of given your professional life? Do you feel like it's given you a new perspective or new energy that you maybe didn't have in London or at the BBC?
1: I couldn't have put it better. That's exactly exactly what it's done. Because, you know, it's one of those things where you can see what's the same and what's different. You can see what is consistent and the things that we should, you know, that I have to keep and maintain and where there is an opportunity to rethink certain assumptions that I might have made, assuming that, you know, that I might have taken um, for, for, for granted or assumed were, uh, you know, inflexible. And the, you know there is just an optimism in, in New York, and there's no other way of putting it. There's a kind of a youthful optimism that everything is possible, everything can be done, you can be forgiven.
0: You're quite the visionary, even though I don't know if you agree with me on that one. I think... Lots of your past colleagues corroborate with me, and one of them is someone called Roly Keating. He was former director of BBC Archive and now the chief executive of the British Library. And he said, "Tony has always had a rare and special ability to see the moral and social potential of media and the internet, and to turn his insights into inspiring visions." On the back of that, I'd love to know what is your vision for the future? Do you do you have a clear idea, or what do you think is the next big thing?
1: Earlier on, you called me a disruptor or something. Yeah. I said I'm an anti-disruptor. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think this is going to be a very boring answer, but I think I'm, I'm think the next big thing is the last big thing. Yes, I, I definitely have a, a perspective that others, I know this now as I'm getting older, that I, I see things differently to others. Um, and I'm also very tenacious. So once I see it, I refuse to not see it. Um, and I'm very flattered by Rowley's comments, they're very lovely, I'm um, very, Roddy's very, 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 very kind of quite heroic character. And there was a time when I, long before I worked for him, when I was not in a very good place work-wise, and I went to him and he was you know, a real mentor and a real supporter and a very generous man. Um, so it's really nice for him to say that. I think that kind of perspective about, I don't know, whether it's morals or values um, are the constant. It goes back to my childhood where you know, things that were unfair um, can become fairer without um, too much disruption. Because quite a lot of the issue that we have in uh, creating a fairer world is that you have to kind of displace some of the previous um, certainties. And that means somebody has to give up something. And it's always harder to get somebody to give up something than to get them to strive for something. And, you know, if you've got a kind of, you're sitting at the top of the tree and somebody says, actually, we could flatten this tree out and everyone can sit beside you. And I you think, yeah, but I'm kind of quite like it. It's not, <laughs> to be honest. And it's very difficult to persuade people to shove over. And when you think about it in that way, all progress mainly comes as a result of somebody being willing to kind of share better and move over. So my personal view is that the, that success is where you don't have to take something from somebody in order to allow somebody to have equality or equivalence. And so I think the next big idea is kind of a strive towards that kind of outcome of equality and equivalence without actually reducing other people's... uh, without taking anything away from somebody. And I think that is the same thing that we've all ever striven for. I think we've often made mistakes of imagining the best way to redistribute wealth is to take some from the wealthy and give it to the poor rather than make everybody wealthy. Now I know that can sound a little utopian, But uh, in the internet era, we do have the opportunity to kind of level things upwards rather than level them down. I think, though, that um, the internet has, uh, as technologies, uh, digital technologies, have a number of characteristics baked into them that are potentially harmful. And so, in describing my job as chief digital officer, I've often said that I use the word digital in my title in the same way that fireman uses fire in his. I'm not trying to spread it, trying to work out how to control it, contain it, and maximize its benefit while reducing the kind of harm. Because if you let fire loose in a library, it would destroy it. But fire is a great thing. It's powerful, and it gives heat and light and comfort and, and so on. And digital is m- metaphorically much the same. There are great things that digital technologies can do, but they can also be very harmful. The principles of of the underlying kind of business models of digital are based on <coughs> obsolescence and obfuscation, um, and on uh, indifference and on mass surveillance. And those four things are real problems, not only for a library, they're, but they're problems for humans. Um, a library can't allow material to become obsolete, and it can't allow context to become obfuscated or lost. And we, ha- we, can, we can't be indifferent. We, have, we cannot have ambivalence. We, we care uh, a lot about the work we do and mass surveillance is something that does not make for a free society, it definitely does not make for free thinking and free thought. And so, um, you know, my role here is to work, how do I avoid uh, those kind of characteristics of the technology, while at the same time getting the benefits of, you know, boundless innovation and lack of geographic restriction and no time-based, you know, the library never closes, and we can make infinite copies. How How do we get those great benefits? Because if we can have infinity of uh, opportunity, of infinite ideas, infinite um, uh, copies, uh, you know, um, no, no time uh, or geographic boundaries, then it is possible for everybody to have the same benefits to everybody mm-hmm. else without taking them from somebody else. And I think any technology that, <clears throat> or any solution, any products, any services that can optimize the strength of the internet while mitigating those kind of inherent near-term profit-based limitations, those are the services that will benefit people and they'll be the ones that survive. And if I look at the way that, for example, the New York Times has really embraced the internet now and understands that the primary purpose of of the role of the Times is probably journalism and not profit, that's, I believe, how it will become profitable. Um, because it means that we're now starting to put values and, and, and our ethics at the front of, of our work. And so I feel kind of an ethical basis for future is where the future
0: is going to be the most secure so speaking of vision for the future what do you want to be when you grow up i want to be a good dad i want to be a good husband
1: Um, uh, 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 not too bad but i'm sure Sure there's always room for improvement i'm still interested and i still I uh, think that I've got one more iPlayer in me, or one more guide uh, in me, so I still think there's one more product. I mean, we've built this Simply E, this kind of, we'll show you, when we've got this e-reader that can read any e-book, and so any library can now um, use this to give libraries back control over the e-reading environment that kind of been lost in the commercial sector, so we're very excited about that, but I think I didn't come up with that idea that was Tony Marks. So I think I've got one more idea in me. Um, I want to be warm. So I don't know if I want to stay in New York forever.
0: Yeah, another, another New York winter. It's yeah. just quite painful, isn't it? And they go on. Yeah, they really do. Um,
1: but I think the digital world gives us the opportunity to find ways to kind of say, level everybody upwards. And I would love to come up with one really significant product uh, on behalf of an organization who are really dedicated to, to that, to leveling upwards. and. You know, and it, I imagine not a very obvious organisation. You know, a bank or um, uh, you know a, a very large you know retail chain. chain. Somebody like that who genuinely is is realises that sort of social equality is where the where the future where their business is.
0: And given that you kind of call yourself a very lucky person, I imagine that that opportunity will arise just at the right time thank you so so much for your time it's been such a pleasure talking to you Beautiful. and you have i'm sure there's hours of brilliant stories in there but i feel privileged to have got a few of them right, thank so you